This is the fucking normal podcast. The cheers, tears and Friday night beers of parenting disabled children. I'm Rena And I'm Lauren. And we're both mothers to daughters with special needs. Parenting a disabled child can often feel difficult to navigate. If this is you, you're not alone. We're here to share unique parenting stories and chat about the things that we've learnt and are still learning. Prepare to sometimes laugh, sometimes cry, but hopefully leave with a shot of optimism in your arm. And don't forget, we are talking from a parent's perspective. We would never presume to talk on behalf of a disabled child or adult. So expect bad language and, quite frankly, some brutal honesty. Because really, what the fuck is normal anyway? Wake me up, loud as clouds, all my love for you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Fucking Normal Podcast, where today our topic is advocacy. Before we get into what we mean by advocacy and why we've chosen it as a topic, we just wanted to say that this is our first episode since, or podcast episode since, we went live. So for all the people who have listened, um, subscribed, given comments and liked, thank you so much. It really means so much to us and it's why we're doing it. So we're really, really chuffed. Thank you. And on that note, um, if there are topics or people that you think would be great for the podcast, please give us a shout on all of our social media platforms and let us know. More details will be at the end as usual. Perfect. So what is advocacy? So advocacy is defined as putting forward a case on someone else's behalf or on behalf of a cause or a policy. And I think most of us in the raising disabled kids world attest we have quickly needed to develop this skill. It's not that you don't have to advocate for your children if you're a parent regardless, but it's just something that is so important when systems of support aren't always automatically or easily in place for your family. The world is largely um, not designed for disabled people. So in navigating this system, you have to champion, you have to persuade and shout loudly on our kids' behalf. There's so many instances. It's the school, therapy, hospitals, even the playground where you need to persuade or fight for the support that you need and your well, that your child needs. Perhaps most of all, when a child is non-verbal or limited in their own communication skills, and it doesn't end there. You most likely need to find others who can advocate for your child both alongside you and, God forbid, if and when you are no longer around. And then where possible, how do you teach your child to advocate for themselves? It's fucking exhausting. In fact, I'm exhausted just saying all of that. Here, here. Um, totally <laughs> attest to everything that you're saying, which is why we are so incredibly excited to have the perfect guest here with us to talk about advocacy. A lawyer and our friend, the wonderful Caroline McPake, or with us professionally. She is a lawyer as well as the senior sponsor for Virgin and O2's Disability Network. She's also a mum of two. Um, she's mum to Rue, who's three, and Dottie, who is five. And it's Dottie that inaugurated Caroline into the role of a STEM mum, as Dottie was born with a rare genetic syndrome, Moat Wilson syndrome. I'm sure Caroline will go into detail into how this condition affects Dottie, but I just want to say that she is the sweetest little girl I've ever met. And the Shakespearean quote, 
though she be little, she is fierce, is the most perfect quote for Dossie. <laughs> so welcome, Caroline, to the podcast. Thank welcome. you. I'm so glad to be here, and I'm so glad to be part of this. And um, I'm excited for my therapy session, so thanks for yes. the free, free therapy, guys. <laughs> the free therapy. Sorry, there's no couch. <laughs> 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 Cup of coffee or half to <laughs> Um, so let's start, Caroline. Um, why don't you share a little bit about Dottie and you and your life and everything that went on from kind of pregnancy up until now? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So Dottie's five at the moment, as she said. Um, I, I mean, would I use the word sweet to sum her up? Maybe. Yes. She's certainly yes. fierce. She's a strong-minded little lady. She's, she's a legend. She's cool. She... Um, she knows what she wants and she knows how to get it. She is largely non-verbal as a result of her genetic condition, her Wilson syndrome, um, as you said. Um, uh, she has so much character and spirit. She <laughs> loves music. She loves Queen and David Bowie and she's just getting Get into her. punk music, which definitely sums up her general attitude. Um, Matt, my husband and I often have to remind ourselves that um, uh, us dealing with her firecracker personality is a small price to pay because that determination she has to get what she wants is something that's going to really serve her well and gives her the grit that she needs to overcome the challenges that she's got. Um, so she um, is at the most amazing school for speech and language uh, that is really, really helping and she's doing really well um, in her communication. Um, she also has some physical difficulties. She's got low muscle tone and hypermobility and some issues with fine motor, but she's overcome so much in her five years already and we're so, so proud of her. Um, in terms of pregnancy, she was born at full term. It was a fairly straightforward pregnancy. Um, she had some feeding issues. So I couldn't breastfeed her and you have all of those hormones as a mother and that incredible pressure to do what you think is best for your child, which, you know, having gone through all the NCT classes, you're kind of indoctrinated into breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. That's probably a whole other yeah, category yeah. of discussion in, in itself. And um, I really, really struggled. I definitely had some postnatal depression, um, but a lot of it was put down to kind of baby blues. I just had this feeling that something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was told, no, no, you know, you're worrying too much. Family were kind of like, had me down as a bit of an over-worrying mum, which was something that hadn't been in my personality so far. So for me, it felt like a little bit unfair, like I was being sort of categorised in a, in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so at her eight-week check at the GP, the doctor noticed a head lag, which is often a sign of low muscle tone, so referred us to... Um, uh, paediatrics. And what's a head lag? So it, basically they take a baby's two arms and pull them up and if their head follows their body it's like their neck strength sort of thing. Right, so right. Uh, so if their head remains sort of floppy it's a sign of them being that, of having low muscle tone. Yeah. So that was noted and I kind of at that point went into a bit of overdrive. Right. Um, Red flag. Red yeah flag. yeah oh my god there is something wrong when I need to you know, do everything I can. So I was researching low muscle tone, hypotonia. She got referred for a bunch of blood tests and other screenings. Because you were pushing. Um, at that point, it had just gone through paediatrics. And, and so that's what they, they were kind of initial basic genetic panels, tests. standard tests. Yeah. Um, and the doctor, an amazing um, paediatrician, said to me, um, well, hypotonia or low muscle tone isn't a condition in itself. It's a symptom 
of what could be a different condition but you know don't get into overdrive trying to google it you know well you know you'll see in due course and everything else seems to be fine so i did go into overdrive researching like we all do um and one thing that i found was um, a facebook group hypertonia uk um that introduced me for the first time to other parents who are living similar experiences a lot of them looking for answers for this low muscle tone as well um, and that's the first time I felt like I wasn't crazy <laughs> I wasn't right, going yeah. into overdrive and I, there were other people that felt like me um, and it gave me a lot of information so what I was after I was hungry for information about what could this be um, and yeah like I said it, it reassured me I wasn't this kind of fuss pot parent that was looking for there to be a problem when there when there probably wasn't one um, so yeah, I felt validated, it gave me a bit of confidence to keep pushing. Um, so after that initial appointment where they did um, some blood tests, um, I got a call from the doctor, so I was packing up. It was Dottie was four months old and we were about to go to the Lake District for Christmas um, with my husband's family, both of our families actually. Um, and the doctor was kind of deliberately breezy, oh, you know, just come back to hospital, we just need to rerun one of the tests, you know, nothing to worry about at this stage, um, but if you could come back in as soon as possible, that would be great. Why do they do that? <laughs> it's the most irritating thing ever. Like, I just wish they would say on the phone, just straight up, straight up, like, look, there's a problem, Yeah, come back. Yeah. So you're not stressing the whole time and then, oh. And yeah, I guess they're trying to be, like not make you worry when they don't know, but yeah, of course you're gonna worry. You exactly. jump to the worst possible scenario. So yeah, I pushed where we got to the hospital, they run, uh, they run the tests again, or they took, there was a urine sample, they took again. Um, and I said, so just tell me what it is. Um, and she said to me, okay, well, it could be nothing or it could be uh, and, and the urine sample that we took could have been contaminated there's something in the urine that's indicating that it, there could be a particular condition and i said well just tell me what that is and she said well i'll tell you what it is but don't google it there's a Why spectrum say, don't google it every time um and so i googled it and it was just it was a condition where um, children die in early infancy. They have a rapid decline and, 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 and pass away. Um, and at that point, I just completely fell apart. Um, yeah, I haven't thought about it for a while. I, yeah, I, 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 I literally lost, lost, lost it. Um, I said to my husband, I don't, I don't want to live anymore. I just felt like I wanted, I didn't want to kill myself, but you know, I wanted to be there for Dottie. I just wanted everything to stop and go away. I just didn't want anything to exist anymore. Yeah. Um, but obviously voicing those concerns, the GP called psychiatric services, they came around to the house and were basically, all of a sudden this thing escalated into, okay, we're gonna check you into um, uh, like a mental health ward with, and you can take your child with you, but we're gonna check you in. And I was like, hang on a second, no. You know, I, I'm, I, I take it all back, it's fine. I'm fine, it's okay. <laughs> But I, you know, I was like, this, that, this isn't what I need. You know, I'm not going to feel better through being in some bleak ward with my child. I'm going to feel better knowing what I need to know about whatever it is that she's got. Um, and so that's when I guess the first time that I can think of that I firmly stood by what I thought was best for me and for yeah. Dottie. And I just said, no, like back off, no. That's not going to happen. And then I said to them, what I'm feeling isn't some sort of psychological 
responds, it is a rational response to the fact that I've been told that my child might die. <laughs> Um, and they kind of said, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Jesus. That's, I mean, presumably, thank God that you were able to kind of put the stoppers on that and yeah. say no at that time. Mothers in general just don't have enough support across the board. Yeah. No. Let alone when you have a child with a disability, it's like non-existent. Yeah. And you think about, so, so it turned out for, for us, that they reran the tests, and I found out, you know, a few weeks later, it was the worst Christmas ever. But apart from that small price to pay, you know, found out it was indeed a false positive, and Dorsey didn't have that condition. And you know, I felt like there'd been an, a miracle. I, you know, I still think to this day about the people that don't don't get that kind of almost second chance, and the people who. Yeah, who, who knows how those people have been dealt with in terms of the support that they've been given. Anyway, so so yeah, that I, I, I honestly felt in that situation, like we dodged a bullet, I carried on with this kind of relentless research. I channeled it more into sort of therapy options for Dottie mm -hmm. because I had a feeling, I was told that you know, there's nothing wrong with your child, but I had this feeling that she was going to need more support. So through that Hypertonia Facebook group, a lot of parents have mentioned conductive education, which is brilliant physical therapy if anyone's children has hypertonia, child has hypertonia, I definitely recommend looking into uh, conductive education and assigned Dottie up to an amazing provider. You know, I would research Lycra suits and therapy options and all these different things. I know that on previous episodes we've spoken about how People, you know, you can go into overdrive as a coping mechanism. Yeah. I definitely did that. And there were definitely raised eyebrows around my family. So, okay, she's becoming a bit obsessive with this whole thing now. You can't control um, anything, you're going to control that. Exactly. So. Exactly. So um, then her, her genetic panel came back clear. Um, and I was told, you know, all of, yes, she does have some symptoms here and there, but really they're all within normal ranges. Yes, she's very, very kind of flexible and she's got low muscle tone, but you know what? There's Olympic athletes who have got uh, hypermobility, so, you know, don't worry. I really felt that I was being dismissed, I wasn't being heard, you know, I was being brushed off by all of the medical people that I spoke to. Um, and I carried on doing this research. I, I, this is the one time that I was wrong about something, but I... I, I convinced myself she had this particular genetic condition and I managed to track down the email address of the geneticist and I wow. emailed her directly and I said, look, you need to test her for this. I'm almost certain she's got it. So they called us in and said, look, we don't think she's got it, but just for your peace of mind, we will, i.e., we're going to do this to shut you up. So um, we'll run the test for you. Um, so they ran that test and it did come back negative and I just thought, oh, no one's going to listen to me now. That was our last chance to get a diagnosis. Um, but then uh, uh, Dottie was 15 months when I became pregnant with her brother, with Rue, who's now three. Um, and I, again, <laughs> uh, Matt, my husband, was not sure about us having a second child. My parents died when I was kind of around 19, 20. Um, and my brother is the only family that I've got. And thinking about Dottie and the fact that she could possibly grow up with some difficulties or challenges in her life, I just thought she has to have a sibling. She has to have someone who can be there for her if we're not. Um, and so again, I became maybe slightly obsessive about wanting to have another child. It's very natural. Like we've covered 
the top of your siblings and mm. shouldn't listen to the siblings yeah. episodes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, same as I think was covered in there. I feel kind of guilty that I almost created another, <laughs> another human being yep. for that purpose. But, you know, Rue is equally as, as amazing as Dottie and, um, you know, they fight all the time. Oh, my God, they don't protect each other in the slightest. But <laughs> maybe so one day. Thing. That's the reality of rooms, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I kind of used my pregnancy as another angle then to get some more genetic testing done. So I called up the, the uh, or emailed the genetics team and said, I'm now pregnant. Um, I'm concerned that my second child might have some of the same challenges as my first child. I think that you need to help um, run some more tests. They agreed to do whole exome sequencing at this point in time. Um, Again, this was a different geneticist this time. He looked at Dottie and said, there's nothing wrong with this child, but we'll run the test for your peace of mind. Clearly, you are, um, uh, uh, clearly you're, you know, a, a worrying mother, but you're pregnant, so we need to take this seriously. Uh -huh. So Rue was born just before Dottie's second birthday. By that point, it had become clear that Dottie did have something going on. So physically, she wasn't walking yet. She wasn't talking, she hadn't progressed between, um, beyond age one. She sort of said yep and no, and then no more speech. Um, and she was making really good progress with conductive education, but you know, it was it was clear that there was definitely something going on, to me at least. Um, and I think Rue was about three months old and I got a call out for Blue from the geneticist saying, we've got a diagnosis for you. Um, it's Mert Wilson syndrome. Don't Google it. <laughs> Literally. Did um, you? Of course I did. <laughs> of course um, you did. And I sat there in tears because what I read was, you know, your child's going to remain nonverbal for life. The children um, that I read about in, you know, these kind of medical case studies, case studies yeah. were all very, very severely disabled. She wouldn't live an independent life. Um, and, yeah, we went to see the geneticist who was... <laughs> I don't know if all geneticists are like this. They're obviously very intelligent people who are very focused on the science of that particular aspect of medicine, and they're not focused on the patient bedside manual. Oh, 100%. Um, 100%. So he kind of just, he, he treated Dottie as a diagnosis. He didn't treat her as a human child. He, she was in the room with us, and he didn't look at her once. Um, and oh instead gosh. he kind of reeled off. She won't do this. She won't go to university. Oh um, she's going to need care all her life. Literally a list of things. And you've got this little two-year-old next to her. Yeah. And all you're wanting is some positivity in that moment. Exactly. Well, it doesn't give you any. Yeah. How can... How can you be that prescriptive on a child's outcomes? That's just not... I don't know. It I was so definitive. Yeah. So definitive. And I was like, how, how can... Look, look at her. She's... She's, she's not talking, but she's communicating. You know, she's kind of engaged with everything going on around her. And he's like, no, he actually drew a chart. I said, how can you tell me that she's, is she going to decline? Because she's actually doing really, really well. And he drew this chart that actually just broke my heart. It basically said, well, here's how um, children like Dottie's kind of cognitive abilities go. You know, you, you start off and all children's cognitive abilities are low to begin with. And most children's will go like this in a sort of diagonal line across the chart. Um, and Dottie's will appear to track it at first, but then it will just get further and further and further away from what a normal child would achieve. And I just thought, oh, okay, well, that 
that's Did you really need somebody to draw that? Like, even if statistically some of that was like true. Yeah. But I just don't understand. It, why it really to felt like he was way. dashing every hope. Every time I said something, it could be hopeful. It, it, yeah, it, it was like he was kind of squishing it down and saying, "No, no, no, you need to manage your expectations." Yeah. Oh, how did um, you react in the ring? Did you? Was that another? It was no. It was one of those situations where you feel overwhelmed, and especially in front of like an eminent geneticist who clearly is very, very intelligent and knows his stuff. I kind of, I did. You know, you have the, those sort of fight or flight responses. I didn't have a fight response in that moment. I just had this kind of like overwhelm where I didn't say anything. And I wish my husband and I, he actually sent Matt out of the room at one point with Dottie. And what? Matt afterwards said, I wish I'd told him to fuck off when he told me to leave the room. Because that's when he did the chart thing. Um, um, but we oh just God. kind of blindly followed what this intimidation. Yeah. The minute that they, they have that consultant doctor thing yeah you kind of have to sit in a corner and listen yeah which i think now that we've been in this world for much longer we know how to advocate for our for children sure. much much better and i feel so sad for myself and for you in those early mm. stages because you just don't know how to react in those no awful beginnings he, i mean he said the most bizarre things he said um she was two and he said you're gonna have to think about contraception for her <sighs> Um, and he said something like, I think this is just about verbatim. These people can reproduce, um, you know, uh, and if she has a child, uh, it's got a 50% chance of having this syndrome. And I was just complete, like it was, only, that didn't sink in until after I'd left the room. And after I left the room, I was really angry. <laughs> I, wanted to get back. I wanted to write a complaint about him, which I never did, because I didn't think he actually intended for that to be offensive or upsetting. But... You know, he was trying to manage expectations, but yeah, I it, just the way that those sorts of medical professionals can communicate, you know, and, and yeah. He also said uh, to Matt and me, well, you should be prepared for this to impact your relationship as well, because most parents of children with disabilities this severe will end up getting divorced. Well, thank you very much Literally, for your, uh, like, yeah. therapy. Do you feel like this guy had quite a lot going on in their own life? Like, <laughs> like Mr. Doom and Gleam. I mean, Jesus yeah. Christ. It was literally like, come to me and I will write off your entire life. Yeah. Oh, my um, God. So, so, yeah, and, and I think that did, I mean, you know, the, the whole combined experience obviously affected me really severely. And I remember lying in bed thinking, well, that's it, my life's over. Um, I just wanted to change how things were, were going for us and, and what and what I felt had happened to us. You know, nothing had happened to us. Dottie was born with this condition, right? It happened at conception. So it's not like all of a sudden, age two, something happened to us. Um, and I just remember feeling so bitter and resentful of other people thinking about my family and about my friends, people that I love thinking, fuck you to yeah. all of them. Like, how dare you, you know, go around in your wonderful, privileged life, having not having to even think about what this feels like, and uh, you've got children that are healthy. Like, how can, you know, you don't appreciate that. You don't understand what it's like for me and, and what we're going through right now. And just feeling really kind of ugly about the whole thing, and then feeling shame for feeling, then that, way. feeling that way. Yep. Um, Which is perfectly normal. 
Yeah, I felt the exact way. And I told my friends, I was like, half of my friends had children and the other half were single Pringles. So yeah. I was in the middle, <laughs> single Pringles. And I said to my friends who have kids, I don't want to know about your children. I don't want to see you. I don't want to see them. Leave me the fuck alone because I cannot handle it. And they respected my wishes for a good like two years. I just couldn't handle seeing, even to this day, like I had a blip when Lua was last in hospital where I was like, I fucking cannot stand seeing kids that don't have appendages right now. It's yeah. just too much because of what we were going through with Lua. I think that's just such a normal yeah. reaction to have when you're going through something so shit. Yeah. You just, I don't want this for my child. I don't want this and I want it to go away. I wish I could change it. And as a parent, you want to do what you can to make your child's life happy. And you think that this is going to be something that's a barrier to their happiness. They're never going to be happy because of this. And yeah, I think the only thing that made me feel better was when I was actually with Dottie. I didn't think about that I thought about her and she was happy. Yeah. And you know, to this day she gives the best cuddles that will Aww. sometimes she'll slap you in the face afterwards, but you know, she generally <laughs> gives the trust. <laughs> or sometimes she wants something in return for them. But, um, yeah. Uh, like so that that's what made me feel better. And I think a lot of what I was feeling was also self-pity. It wasn't just pity for her, it was pity for myself that my life had gone this way. Um and I just thought, I, I was, I, I worried about what other people would think about me and our family and, you know, how they would judge us and maybe think that we weren't good enough because we had a child with a disability. Um, yeah. And, yeah. It, I mean, that's, that's, because, yeah, it's your life up until that point. You've been socialised and lived in a, a world that has judged people. I mean, yeah. It's kind of completely natural to feel like that. Totally. I, I thank you for sharing all of those those moments of real vulnerability because I'm sure all of us have felt like that at times and it's yeah it's horrific and it's but it's normal yeah it's it's fucking it's normal, normal. It is it's fucking, fucking normal. normal to hate the world yeah and I used to always have this thing of just wanting I don't know why it was a cardboard box but in my head you know I remember saying it to Patrick as well I always had this like image or vision of me and my two children climbing into a cardboard box to hide away from the world yeah and just going there quite a lot in those early days in my head yeah it's like protection yeah you want everything else to go away and for your little bubble to exist exactly yeah exactly so yeah i was kind of feeling pretty shitty at that point in my life um and i had kind of met met you know, it's established a dialogue with a few of the mums through the Hypertonia Facebook group that also lived in London. Um, and, you know, I wasn't doing anything else with my sad life, so decided I'll meet them for a coffee. Um, and uh, met up with these women and their amazing kids. And the immediate comfort I felt was how normal they were. Yep. Like these weren't pitiful people who led sad lives and their children weren't pitiful, sad human beings. You know, different kids had different disabilities, um, but they were cool. And I kind of felt like, oh, these would be my friends if I met them at work or socially. Like these are normal people. Um, and uh, that's where I think, you know, the famous WhatsApp group that we've spoken about sort of took off. Um, and 
I think really, yeah, it kind of gave us all maybe a, a kind of insight into fact that, you know, although our children have different things going on, there's a shared common experience that some of the things and the feelings and the experiences that you go through and it validates you feeling that way and it's okay to feel that way because sometimes it is shitty. Um, and the other thing is that having a, a group of like-minded people, whether that's through, uh, a, you know, and, and I've had similar experiences with um, the Moat Wilson family Facebook forums. There are, there are different groups out there for depending if you've got a diagnosis there's other organizations if you don't have a diagnosis there's places that you can turn to where um, people are going through the same thing as you and those people are normal people um, and uh, so I think having a, people who understand you that you can turn to is like having someone that's always in your corner and give you confidence to push for what you need to do they can tell you that you're not crazy um and yeah well, i really hope that that's i mean that's the kind of raising detra of the fucking normal podcast so yeah. that's where it's come Amen. from um yeah we might we're talking to all of you you're all fucking normal we're fucking normal none of us are alone yeah we, we, we have all have each other <laughs> exactly and i think yeah some of that like i said the shared experiences can uncover that actually some of the systems are fucked up. It's not it's not what you are doing or not doing. The system true, is broken. Yeah. And so it gives you some passion to fight against that and to do something about it, right? Or to change attitudes. Even maybe to advocate. Exactly. Ooh. Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, so fast forward to today, Dottie's five, she's doing so well. Um, I feel at peace with where we are, to be honest, because I know it's just life. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be okay. It, like, I get emotional saying it because I never thought that it would be okay, but it really is. There's still, you know, some rough days, some struggles, but, you know, I know that I'll get her what she needs. She's happy, um, and life's pretty normal and pretty good. Oh, music to my ears. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> You're us all cry now. Oh, um, I mean, yeah, thank you so much. But for, for giving the full kind of background I story. I would get so emotional talking about the happy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's when somebody says, are you okay? Yeah. Go, Don't say that to me, I'm going to cry. But you talked about a number of times then as well when you, early on when you had to kind of advocate for you and Dottie. But what does, coming back to, not to, to force it, but to come back to the topic of this episode, what does advocacy mean to you as a parent, Dottie? Um, well, I think as a parent, like, you know, like any other parent, not necessarily a you know parent of a kid with a disability, you feel a, a responsibility and your role is to get the best for your child. Like every parent wants the best for their kid, of course they do. Um, you want the best education and you want them to have the best opportunities in life. You want them to reach their potential, basically, whatever that might be. Um, you know, whether your child's going to be a neurosurgeon or an artist or just be happy, that's what you want. Um, and so, you know, as parents, you have lots of different roles, you're a carer, a teacher, bank, taxi service, and we're all advocates for our kids until hopefully they get to a position where they can advocate for themselves or they can be independent. I think as a parent of a child with additional needs, you don't know if often if your child's going to reach that level of independence. Um, in my case, my daughter literally can't speak for herself, so I have to speak for her. 
um, and I have to be the person that gets her what she needs. Um, as you said in the intro, Lauren, the world's really not been designed for disabled people. Um, and so there are barriers everywhere. And so as a parent of a child with a disability, you start to see some of those barriers really early on in their life. Um, so I think there's, there's different types of advocacy, right? There's advocating medically, as I was kind of talking about in terms of pushing for a diagnosis, access to therapies or treatment you can often be dismissed as a parent pushing for a diagnosis or a treatment um, and you have to advocate and push for what you feel your child needs sometimes you have a gut feel as to what they might need and you know as a parent or as a mum it's a cliche about mum knows best but really you know your child so much better than any medical professional. You know, they know what they know from studying hard for a medical degree and reading medical journals and reading things that are written down. But you know your child, they don't know your child. So true. And I, like your, your story as you described it, it was your gut. Yeah, okay, sometimes the gut took you down a like slightly different path, yeah. but your gut was un ultimately telling you, I need a diagnosis. I yeah. know that there's something more going on. Yeah. It's so so valuable to have to have that and to feel you can trust it. I'm, I think there must be a lot of people who don't have such a kind of positive outcome in terms of getting answers yeah. as you do. And it makes you think, doesn't it? Because you know, like you say, I'm a lawyer, so I am actually trained to argue, to put my case forward, and to assimilate a bunch of information and to you know critically assess it and to basically get an outcome um and i you know in, in that meeting with the geneticist i froze up and i couldn't ask the questions that i felt i needed to ask and i took what he told me at face value um and you think okay well what about people who you know culturally or otherwise personality wise you know are not the sort of person that likes confrontation mm. and will just take what is given to them at face value completely it can also be kind of that educating yourself of what rights your child has yeah so you take it at face value but maybe feel that they need something else yeah but you don't realize that they have a, a right to something else yeah. that you you have a right to say no or yeah. to ask for a second opinion yeah. or to challenge what school provision yeah. has been put in place for your kid yeah if any has been put in place for your kids and yeah it breaks my heart to think that there are so many people out there that aren't totally and yeah i mean when you're advocating for rights in in general education is a big one right but any parent of a sen or disabled child you know oh my god you could have a whole episode on the hcps and on the, the battle but you know my daughter said dotty can't speak but she can communicate she's got a lot to say um and she wouldn't be able to survive in a mainstream education the mainstream as it stands today because you know, guess what? The education system hasn't been set up or designed to include all children. And so Dottie can't speak and therefore would be excluded from a whole big part of the curriculum. And um, what she needs is um, specialist support to access curriculum. So people that sign and, you know, different provision around, um, you know, uh, like technology to enable her to communicate. The system isn't built to 
to offer that to a child. You have to fight for it. You have to, in most cases, go through a legal process in order to get it. And then I guess there's wider advocacy. Um, there's advocating for others who, um, like as we said, might find themselves in similar situations and find the system stacked against them. So you, you kind of want to um, help people to understand what they can do to, to help themselves and their children. And then um, maybe it isn't advocacy in a strict sense, it's probably more allyship, but like doing what you can to change wider attitudes in society and make the world a more accepting place for your child to grow up in, be that, you know, attitudes of children in the playground or, mm -hmm. or attitudes of, you know, culture in general. Yeah. Um, that was a, that's a big one because obviously coming from a Eastern European background, like disability is such a taboo. Like there are still people who view disability as like, the worst thing in the world and will hide their children away mm. god forbid but when Lowell was born I think my family struggled initially with the diagnosis like just the word syndrome was like oh fuck what is this kind yes. of how could this happen what is it da, da, da. and like I started to blog about it and I was very active on social media because I had a, a, a big not a big following but like maybe 500 followers on Instagram 80% were from Kosovo and Albania mm -hmm. and so I would post a lot about my life with Lua just to show that this is normal yeah it's my fucking normal it's not a big deal well in the beginning I was like fuck me I hate my life yeah but over time once I started to accept my reality posting about it and I had so many messages of support from other Albanians just saying wow like wow this is talking amazing. about just talking it. about it yeah, yeah. and so from afar, you're changing perspective on what disability is. Yeah. You're making it less, not attainable, but less out of reach and out of touch yeah. with life, yeah. which is something I'm very proud of myself right now. It sounds so silly, but like changing how you view things. Yeah. And celebrating things. Yeah. So your, your, your Instagram celebrates Lua, right? Her sassiness, you know, her amazing outfits. Ah. Um, but you know, it, it shows that like this is my child, and I'm proud of her. Yeah. And you know that that is powerful in itself for other people to see. Like you say, in some societies, I think you know even in the UK, I think older generations. I'm not sure that all of my family has accepted that Dottie has a disability. It's not spoken about yeah. throughout my entire family. Oh, my, it's my just kids. something that you know. Ooh, just leave that to one side yeah. drives me fucking mad but you kind of like okay everyone's on a journey of acceptance and you can't necessarily immediately bring someone to where you are yeah but oh my god it's not <laughs> she hey, it's, yeah. she's in Kosovo right now and I was talking to my mum and uh, dad because I'm very excited for my grandmother my grandfather to meet Lua they're 90 they are from a completely different generation and my dad was laughing and he was like yeah be prepared and i'm not even offended because i understand how they view the world they are so far removed from where we are now to where or how they were brought up so i'm conscious of the fact that they will view her as different and potentially kind of you know odd and be a bit difficult maybe Although I'm not there to see it at the moment, <laughs> I'm conscious that, that that is still something that yeah. 
is a fight to this day. I bet though they'll spend half an hour with her and they will just fall in love with her How and she will not? just be Lua, right? Yeah. Her new thing is literally taking your hand and kissing it and then <gasps> asking to kiss oh. your cheek so I know that she will be like <laughs> working on the magic. So, you know, going back to your professional capacity as a lawyer and mm -hmm. having those skills which you reference, and you refer back to the geneticist moment as being a, a time when you froze. Since then, and since her diagnosis, what's been the most challenging time for you when you've had to wear that advocacy hat? So, um, definitely the process to get her her EHCP. So, Yes, I'm a solicitor. I went into law because I've always been an argumentative, argumentative, difficult person. I'm a cynic who, you know, won't take at face value what someone tells me. Um, you know, I want to make my own judgment about something. And um, I kind of heard through the grapevine on these different forums that EHCPs or education healthcare, should we explain what those are? Yeah, we, I mean, we've mentioned DHCPs in other episodes, but for anyone listening afresh to this episode, in the UK, it's basically a, a legal document that gives your child the right to education. Yeah, essentially, and specifies what their needs are in an educational setting and how that will be provided for. Yeah, it's basically a contract with your local authority to say, this is what you have to provide for my child. Um, and so you need that document in order to access certain types of specialist provision. And I knew that Dottie had um, a diagnosed condition where most children don't end up talking at all. So I thought, God, it's an open and shut case. You know, I was really casual about it. I just downloaded a form off my local authority website, filled it out, sent it off, thought, okay, great, they'll send it me back and we'll have an education healthcare plan and I'll be able to get her into the school book that I feel that she should be at, um, wrong. <laughs> if only, if only it worked like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I was completely bowled over when I got a response saying, we're not gonna assess your child because we don't think there's even a chance that she will need a specialist provision. Um, and so it's at that point that I started getting my <laughs> legal advice. Um, and I realized that what I'd done is not advocate for her in a legal or a professional sense, I advocated for her sort of as a mum. So in the bits on the form that say, what are her strengths? I'd gone to town and I'd written, oh, oh she's great at this, she does this, she's highly engaged socially. And on the challenges, I was like, oh, well, yeah, I think she can't speak. Um, because I was proud of her and I was proud of what she'd achieved so far. And I wanted to shout about that and tell someone about it. But yeah, that is the wrong approach. It's because, so natural. Yeah. And yet they tell you, don't they? I've had this advice a few times, I'm sure you have as well. Um, you've got to write it as they are on their worst so, day. Yeah. 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 And it's true because otherwise you are giving them an out. Yeah. Basically, what I discovered completely shocked me, which is an absolutely fundamentally broken, fucked up system that is based on budgets and budgets alone. No one cares about the child at the heart of it. No one cares about giving that child an education and provision. All they care about is allocation of budget. And these people are basically tasked at the local authority to find a reason not to give you that budget. Um, that is shown in the fact that 95% of cases that go to appeal find in favour of the family. 
So 5% of those cases, the local authority has acted correctly. 95% of them, they're wrong. Those are the ones that went to appeal. Those, so if you go to appeal, you have to pay a fortune in legal fees or spend a lot of time and effort yourself to represent yourself. So only a small number of cases will go to appeal. So there will be thousands of children out there not getting support to access education. That's their fundamental human right. Oh. Um, me so angry as a lawyer, um, you know, uh, and a mum who would run through brick walls to get my kid what she needs. I still had to pay a professional to strategize to get to what we needed. We got what we needed. We got the EHCP. She's at an amazing school now where she's absolutely thriving. She's just finished her first year there, and and oh my god, it's having just the most miraculous impact on her. I dread That's to think brilliant. what would happen if she wasn't there. Yeah, and that's the case, as you say, for thousands of children. I mean, it just breaks my heart. And, and then you, not to like extrapolate too far, but that's in the UK as well. So there's thousands of children in the UK that aren't getting there. Other countries around the world, there aren't the systems, however yeah. fucked our system is, yeah. there aren't even those systems or support yeah. in place. So yeah. Worldwide, how many children Oh, I yeah, it doesn't bear thinking about. As a lawyer, I like to think I've kind of got this barometer for what's right and wrong and, you know, what's equitable. And, and the, that whole thing just made me sick to my stomach, thinking I, I, I basically paid my way into getting what yeah. she needs because I'm in a privileged position. I can do that. I felt so guilty about the fact that, OK, well, I'll get to see what she needs. But what about all of these other children and, and, and what? What can I do? What can I do to help those families? Because this is just wrong. And so you are doing stuff, aren't you? <laughs> so tell us well, a bit about that. So I started to do what I could to basically take what I'd learned from the experience that I had to help other people. So if I saw someone on a Facebook group or a forum saying, I'm struggling with, I've, I've been rejected for an assessment for my child, I would DM them and say, like, tell me all about it and I'll try and help you. Um, and so I think there were three or four people actually we got successful assessments for and they got their HCPs and it was great. Amazing. But it was just, I felt like it was a real drop in the ocean. And I was like, well, I, like, I, I, I actually thought about, I was going through a, a process at work where the company I worked for was merged with another one and I thought I might get made redundant. And I did actually think maybe I should quit work and just do this, but then I realised that I wouldn't be able to pay. <laughs> pay my own bills and my mortgage so maybe not that might not help um, in the, in the exactly, long term exactly but I wanted to do something and, and I discovered through my network of, of legal contacts that actually um, uh, some people that I was I, you know known throughout my career had set up um, uh, a charity so throughout lockdown they discovered the same thing. Someone that worked through, uh, with them went through the process of getting an HCP. They had also been horrified by how fundamentally wrong the system was. And, and like me, <laughs> struggling to find a way to help, they've gone ahead and set up this amazing charity. So Support Send Kids is a charity um, that basically uh, aims to use legal technology to provide access to the law on a free basis. Um, to parents to enable them to advocate advocate for their children to try and um, you know help them save themselves from going down a very expensive legal route to basically democratize um, the information they need to to advocate for their child's education. That's wow. brilliant. That's amazing. 
Absolutely. We'll put the details in the show notes as well yeah. if you ever want to. And I think we've spoken about community and, and, and the, the, the idea of Support Centre Kids is that it creates a community. So if you go through the process from the HCP, um, join the website, ask a question, you'll get a question, you'll, you'll get people who will answer your question for you. So it's a community of people who will help each other through shared experiences. There's also access to some, some lawyers on there that can help. They also can't advise on specific cases, but they can help answer questions. Again, opens up as a guide on send law. We're producing more guides on things like disability discrimination, how to write a will, um, all useful things wow. that can help a parent um, to put themselves in the best position to advocate. That sounds absolutely amazing. Well I'm done. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. It's only where you get the time and the energy to do all the things you do. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, yeah, I, I feel very guilty because I don't spend as much time doing that as I really ought no, to. No, but, but there's yeah. always that. There's only one Caroline, you can't you know, like replicate yourself. Do you feel like, has it changed? Has, has your ability to advocate changed, do you think, as she's got older? There's been this battle for the HCP that you described, and obviously you're now doing all that amazing work in sort of allyship and helping to other people to advocate for their, their children. But do you feel like you've got to a place now where you really understand how to navigate the system and challenge? Your bullshitometer, is that yeah. better? That's <laughs> like, like, we, older. Good. There we go. There we, we go. Rina has a bullshitometer. <laughs> I know that. Like, we all need a bit of Rina's bullshitometer in our lives. <laughs> I, hope, I, I think the bullshitometer is a, a really great way of looking at it because I think you can, as an advocate and as someone who passionately obviously believes in getting your kid what you want, you're very emotionally attached to it um, and sometimes you can be a bit too emotionally attached mm. and you can go through having all of these experiences of having to fucking fight, you know, like people joke about mama bear kind of yeah. you know running through walls but you, you can get into a place where everything feels like a, a battle and so yeah you you go in as attack is the best form of defense and every person you meet be they a medical professional be it people at school be mm -hmm. it um you know whoever you go in there with this kind of aggressive mentality of like fuck you I'm going to get what I need out of this. Yeah. And actually, that's that's not always the best approach. I think, you know, sometimes that's what you have to do. But that's exhausting. And having that mentality is exhausting. And feel like, feeling like you're in a constant battle is exhausting. And I do think it is about picking your battles. Absolutely. And it, you, you, getting the right outcome isn't always going to be by going down that route. Yeah. Fight, fight, fight. I, I find certainly... You know, certain medical settings, certainly when you're trying to get legal, you know, EHCP type yeah. support, it's important to fight and have your game face on. Yeah. But in education, it, it, I, I found examples where it's been much more subtle than that. Mm -hmm. So B's really happy at school and she's doing really well. But I found time and again, I've had to advocate in a slightly more subtle way in terms of like raising their expectations for her mm -hmm. um around reading for example a bit like dotty b just didn't speak much at all until very recently where she's able to speak a bit more certainly in the in the home um, but she has huge communication challenges and i i felt like with that i didn't see that as a barrier to her learning to read if she 
can do it um, and and she wants to do it i'm going to do everything in my power to help her to read um and she loves books and she always was just like sitting pretending to read books mm-hmm. like look, following them with their finger all the words oh. and stuff um so that's something where at school i have been a pain in the backside constantly trying to encourage different ways of exploring it and doing it because I just feel like I'm not going to sit back and wait for her to be able to speak more words until she reads because that could be a long time um and every kid has the right to to try and access literacy so yeah I feel it's about setting setting a higher expectation for your child sometimes and you do that like at school dotty school is awesome the staff there are just i love them all so much i cried at her annual review just thanking them all oh, amazing. Um, because they you know they see her as an individual they don't see her as having a specific syndrome or condition they see her they really really see her um but likewise you know so she's in the care bees in the care of, of the people at school you want to be respectful. You don't want to piss them off completely, but you you want them to up their game. So it's, 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 yeah. it's a nudge, isn't yeah. it? It's like, and I do share videos of things that she's done at home that I think are amazing. Yeah, to kind of say, look, look, she can do this. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it might be a bit of control freak in me as well. I'm not a teacher, but. <laughs> But you could say that about anything. I'm not a doctor, but you know, you know, you know B, and you know in your heart of hearts what she's capable of, and you know that she's got great potential. Yeah. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with keeping people on their toes. Wake me up, loud as clouds. So in terms of other assumptions of other people that you've had to challenge Caroline has there been other examples where you've had to go in and and question or challenge the assumptions people have made yeah well I think generally um a a big learning for me have uh, you know as as a parent of a disabled child is being able to have a reason to have insight into the disabled community generally and through my uh, work, so my position in my sort of professional life, as uh, I think Rena said in the introduction, I'm a sponsor of our disability network. And through that, I've just had the opportunity really to have some really, really fantastic conversations and to learn myself from some brilliant disability activists, from disabled adults in the workplace. Um, and it was through that that I first learned about the social model of disability. Um, and when I was told about the social model, that was a real light bulb moment for me because it shone a light and made me realise myself in terms of challenging my own assumptions. It, it explained to me entirely why I'd had such a difficult time in accepting Dottie's diagnosis in the first place. Yeah, so, we've just, and I'm sure that most listeners will understand what the social model of disability is, but if you could just in like a sentence. I'll do my best to explain it in a sentence. The world's fucked up, basically, I think. It's, totally. It's my that is the best way. <laughs> That's in summary, absolutely. So the social model basically teaches you that um, 
a disabled person isn't disabled by their condition or their impairment, be that, you know, something physically or cognitively or otherwise. They're disabled by the societal view and all of the barriers that exist in society. So the stigma around disabled people that, this, that you know, disability is a dirty word or that disabled people are somehow broken or they need to be fixed. So if you, um, you know, classic example, if you're in a wheelchair, then you need to be fixed. You need to be enabled to walk, not that society needs to change so that there's access for you and so that you know you're able to do and travel around and do what you need to do through the tool of your wheelchair the wheelchair is what enables you to access but you know the the world as we said is not built for disabled people it's built for a certain type of person and that person is generally an able-bodied person so a person wouldn't in that case wouldn't be disabled by the fact that they need a wheelchair to get around they're disabled by the fact that there's no access and that society views them in a certain way and the opportunities are not available to them and so it's that that made me realize that um you know, Dottie doesn't need to be pitied. In fact, Dottie doesn't need to be changed at all. The world needs to change and attitudes yeah. need to change and society needs to change. And my attitude to disabled people needed to change. So, you know, just like I was frustrated that that geneticist didn't see her, he saw her just as a label or a diagnosis and not as Dottie. Um, I remember really clearly um, our first appointment with our community a paediatrician who was amazing after having seen that um that geneticist and I was up in pieces and she said to me I'm not treating a syndrome I'm treating Dottie and I was like oh, I love you yeah. so much you're amazing why can't more people say things like that exactly and and that in itself made me realize but that is her treating Dottie you know through not a medical medicalized model of disability but seeing the patient in front of her um so yeah so that so seeing that um social model of disability having those light bulb moments through these conversations with you know uh, wonderful people um has changed my view of disability and it's made me really passionate about changing attitudes in the workplace and in society as a whole as a result you know we we all want to make the world a better place for our children and I think as a parent of a disabled kid you want to change those attitudes so that your child can grow up in a better place. I think that leads us really nicely into how you're teaching Dottie to advocate for herself because I think that's incredibly important. It, yeah it is important I don't have all of the answers on that at all I wish I did it's a really difficult question it's one that I'm sure you're both conscious of for um uh for B and and for Lua as well because you know it it's basic good parenting that you want to give your child everything that they need to be independent but when your child is disabled you your automatic response is to want to protect them from the world around them yeah. um and so it's hard to try and enable them to be able to do that for themselves also because in some cases, you don't know how capable, in Dottie's case, I don't know how capable she's going to be in the future to advocate for herself. I don't know if she's going to be able to talk or not. No one's going to be able to give me the answer on that. Time will tell. Um, I know that she has a lot of <laughs> attitude. Um, you know, she she knows what she wants. And so I've got to enable her to, to be able to communicate that to people. Um, and there's so many contradictions as well when you're trying to empower your child 
from a medical perspective, you know, how do you teach your child about consent and being able to, and then being empowered to say no to an unwanted physical interaction when, you know, the next day you might have to hold them down in order to, you know, be cannulized to get to oh receive, gosh. you know, critical medical treatment. Yeah. Dottie was in hospital um, uh, a couple of months ago. I had to, I think, physically restrain her and hold her down. I think it was 18 times in four days I counted uh, because she kept popping her cannulas. Um, and she was screaming at me, mommy, no, ouchie, mommy, no, please. And it breaks your heart, but you know you have to do it. So you do that because you're advocating that's the best thing for your child in that moment. But then the next moment you're saying it's okay to tell people no when they when they want to touch you and you don't so want them to hard. touch you. Oh my God. I've so never heard that, that that way. Like, yeah. So, so yeah, similarly, I was I, I was thinking B's um, been going through a particularly tricky phase in the summer holidays. I think lack of routine is probably playing into it. She's a bit tired. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But today to get her out of the house, I just in the end gave up and picked up her shoes, picked up B and like pretty much like fireman lifted her to the car. Yeah. Um, which we've all done that. <laughs> great about it but you know that exactly what you just I mean it's obviously less about medical needs so you know harder to explain or justify but I just needed to go because we were going to be really late and um I tried everything else and it's it's really hard I think as well when they can be quite so teaching them to advocate for themselves I think in now in like sort of I guess less extreme examples mm. but maybe when they're playing with other children I find that really hard as well because you can't really be can be quite passive and so then you try and get involved to try and let you know get other children to include her but then that's you know you don't want to be like forcing other children to play with your child when yeah. you know it's not easy to communicate with them or to um yeah for it to make it work Olivia's very good at that with B Olivia's uh B's older sister is really good at if she's playing with like cousins or friends or whatever to mm -hmm. include her but yeah. I don't know how much longer that'll last given you know I think that's the, <laughs> the same for typical kids as typical you know that's true in, yeah. in, in the same like both the consent thing you know I had to restrain uh Dottie's brother <laughs> flying in the plane because he wouldn't put his seatbelt on um uh, also as you're talking the one thing that really struck me also on our holiday recently is that yeah I would normally be really protective about Dottie playing with other people I'd want to know what they're saying to her if they're asking her questions about why she can't talk to her and I think a, a learning for me on holiday she made friends with these two kids in the pool through no interaction with me this little girl came over to her and I heard her say to her hello friend and they oh. struck up this friendship. It's, these two girls were lovely. One was six and one was three, two sisters. Um, and Dottie had this, like, this amazing friendship with them over the course of about three days. They turned out to, to be staying in the room next to us and were passing notes to each other under the door. I was worried that they would be asking her or me why she couldn't talk or why is she a bit different but no one asked me that question the other parents didn't ask me that question they were just totally accepting you know let her get on with it um and it was lovely
so you know she's she's okay funding for herself I think more than I that's amazing yeah and actually maybe as well as a lesson I think it's very easy because you spend so long fighting on behalf of the child and for what your child needs and advocating all over the shop sometimes you need to let go a little bit and just let them find their way yeah yeah absolutely I think you know the 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 thing that's you know we're just having a lovely uplifting part of the conversation I'm about to bring it down to earth with a massive thump but uh, um, one of the massive fears that you have and that I'm sure any parent who's listening who has a disabled child has is what what happens when we're not here anymore you know how do we make sure that we've provided for them after we've gone and you know like any parent I've lain awake at night many times crying my eyes out thinking who's going to look after her? what's going to happen after we're gone every time I have like the slightest health issue I'm thinking oh my god what if I die and who's going to look after her mm-hmm. um and I was having a conversation with Matt my husband and Doc had once again managed so she, you'll say no to her and she will find a way somehow of getting what it is that you've refused her she is a world-class negotiator you go into a shop and you say to her you can have one thing and you always leave with at least two things um and I like she'd managed to get herself something that we'd both said no to her and I just looked at Matt and I said she's gonna be all right <laughs> she's gonna be okay isn't she this kid's got it sorted she knows how to manipulate situation to her advantage you know maybe she doesn't need to be able to talk to do that she's she's I think she's going to be okay so yeah maybe it is a huge part of, of letting go right but that's a hard thing to do for us isn't it? yeah and I think it will be for a lot longer yeah forever perhaps yeah but is there anything else that you wanted to say just one other thing on as we're thinking about you know what happens after we've gone I do hope that I mean Dottie like I said before, you know, we had we had another child because I wanted Dottie to have a sibling. Dottie's also got some amazing cousins who she adored. I really hope fundamentally that they learn that growing up with a disabled cousin or sister is, you know, that they treat it as something that's totally normal uh, and they don't even have to think about it. They don't even have to consider the social model because they just are accepting of not just disability in all its forms but of any difference and yeah yeah, I guess that's just the long longest hope that in the future maybe there'll be less of a need to advocate because attitudes and people will have changed and hopefully they are changing now yeah but until then like I would love you on my team Lucky's Dotty has an amazing person fighting for her so amen Amen. oh thank you well you know all of our kids are are lucky to have some amazing women and we're lucky to have each other so yeah <laughs> well thank you and um as we've started to do on the podcast more recently as well we will ask you to close with telling us what your fucking normal is <laughs> so uh my fucking normal because it seems to happen every morning is being woken up at 3am to a tap 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 on my shoulder and a little voice that goes mummy and I immediately go, oh, my God, it's 3 a.m. But then very quickly say, no, Caroline, you didn't think you'd ever hear, hear her say that. So, you know, deal with it. So that's my fun. Oh, so cute. <laughs> that's gorgeous. I love that. 
lots of love to Dottie. Thank you. Uh, and to Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Caroline, so, so much. It was a blast having you on the Fucking Normal podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Fucking Normal podcast. We love making this podcast. Yes, we do. (laughs) We're part of a much bigger team, almost exclusively all parents of disabled children. And our goal is to reach as many people as possible and create a community of support for parents and carers who share our experiences. So if you've liked what you've heard, please like and subscribe so that we can reach out to more people. You can find more information on this and other episodes at fuckingnormalpodcast.com. That's F-K-I-N-G normalpodcast.com. You can join us on Facebook and on Instagram at fuckingnormal underscore podcast. That's F-K-I-N-G normal underscore podcast. You can get all the links and more information in the show notes below. So thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. We'll see you next time. Bye. Wake me up.